This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be, and heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Brendan Radican, who has just successfully completed his second year of medical school at the Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine in Indianapolis, Indiana. He's going to peel back the curtain on the life of a medical student just like he did last year when he talked to us about first year. This is volume two, so this will be second year. Two of at least four for medical school, and then depending what specialty he picks, it exactly. could go on from there. So for people who did not get to hear last year's episode, we'd encourage you to check out the podcast, pull that up to kind of set the stage of where he's been, and then today we're going to figure out the newest updates. Uh, yes, and uh, we'll find out what he is thinking about going into, and it, it's kind of fascinating to see how the specialty that a medical student chooses kind of evolves over time. But Andrew and I, uh, the day before we taped this episode, uh, came back from an exciting event at uh, University of St. Mary of the Lake in Mundelein, Illinois, just north of O'Hare Airport in Chicago, where we had approximately 50 leaders of the Catholic Medical Association and 50 medical students at what we call the Medical Student Boot Camp. Yes, it was a really nice experience and you know the the case, it was better than nice come on it, it That's was a better, windy word <laughs> it was better than nice it was very well organized i i know the person who helped organize that I'm yes I, I do too him. yes <laughs> and so i i really enjoyed it and you know for our listeners the catholic medical associations a, a group of catholic doctors and our our goal is to help doctors imitate jesus christ and so Basically, there's two big meetings that we have every year. We have an educational one in the fall, and then in the summertime, there's a leadership one that focuses largely on not only building leadership values in its members, but also on helping us mentor the next generation of physicians. Yes, and really the, the big idea behind this boot camp for the medical students is that today most medical schools have a very secular ethic. They have a secular output, outlook on what the human person is, which can be radically different from what we believe in the church about what human dignity is. And I know, at least when I went into medical school, I felt very much alone at that place in, in my life. Uh, the people were very kind people, but coming from a family where faith was extremely valued, and, and I was blessed in undergraduate to be around peers that faith was very important to them, going to medical school Faith was, uh, it, it was most certainly not valued, and even from the people who had it, it did not lead to the type of actions and convictions that my faith holds me to. And so if you, if you believe in something, it should affect the way you live your life. And if you, if you don't have that positive peer group and mentors to encourage you, you can really feel pretty isolated. So what we're trying to do in the CMA is prepare a generation of physicians that you would want as your physician, someone who's going to respect your beliefs, respect your dignity, respect your body, and truly tell you what they believe will be the best for you without either being paternalistic or without doing whatever you want them to do. Somebody who enters into a, a moral conversation with you and respects you as an equal actor in that conversation and decision-making. It's, it's really important with all the changes in medicine we talk, talk about on the show, uh, public policy changes and changes in the infrastructure and how medicine's paid for. The thing that you have to keep at the center is the doctor-patient relationship. When that gets spread out, or divided or interjected by insurance companies or the government, or if you have doctors that really are not entering in on uh, in an open way. They're, they're coming in with preconceived notions or ideas that would be difficult to respect your views. When that relationship falls apart, that really is the death knell of Catholic medicine. And I'm reading a book now that one of my colleagues at the at the meeting last week recommended called Back to Balance. It's by a, a doctor who's in charge of the Medical Group Management Association, this huge association that represents almost half of medical practices in the country and, and helps us with our, our managers. Uh, and our group belongs to it. I don't know if your group does, Andrew. We, we haven't paid for the membership, but it's a, it's a very well-known group, and they help get metrics and assistant in the management of practices. And 
this book, Back to Balance, the basic thesis is that the current medical system is imbalanced, and it's imbalanced among three things, where two of the three things have taken over. Those two things are the science of medicine and the business of medicine. And what's suffering? The art of medicine. And what Andrew just says is really where the art of medicine is, the physician patient relationship. So we're going to be interested. I'm interested to hear from Brendan, you know, even though he's just been through the first two preclinical years, is there any emphasis on the art of medicine? Because that's, that's why most of us go into it. Yeah, we like the science and the business is necessary, but the art is really where the fulfillment is at on both sides. It really is. And that's, that's where you get the human interaction. I, I was talking to a guy the other day, and the, the science of medicine is very interesting. So many new discoveries, so many amazing things you can help patients with. But you do get to a point after a while where you, you kind of more or less understand the science of medicine as it relates to your field on a day-to-day basis. I, I made the analogy of a guy that works on air conditioners. <laughs> after a while, you know all the parts of the air conditioner. I mean, it's just not that intriguing right. how, to, how to fix them. But the blessing, but when they don't work. <laughs> well, the, the blessing about medicine is that I get to meet so many friends every single day and have so many wonderful conversations where hopefully I can help patients in, in a way, and I am finding myself constantly learning now Remember, Andrew is part sanguine, which means a stranger is only a friend he hasn't met yet. That's right. Now, to, those, to <laughs> introverts out there, don't feel guilty if you don't look at life that, w- that way. It's That's right. okay. We need pathologists, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, pathologists are people, That's too. That's true. Very, very good, Andrew. Uh, you know, Andrew wanted to remind people of, of the path to medical school. Yes, I think to, to kind of set the stage for people who are not familiar, it's a, it's a distant galaxy far, far away. The <laughs> path to medical school is crazy and arduous, but at least at the beginning, it's, it's somewhat straightforward with the requirements. After high school, usually it's required that you complete a four-year undergraduate education. In America, that's common. Other countries, not so much. And then after you, you finish college, you sit for a big test called the MCAT, very difficult. Most people who take the MCAT don't get to go into medical school because they don't score high enough. If you succeed in that, you got to go and apply to a medical school and hopefully impress compared to the thousands of other applicants, the people who are admitting you. And then after you go through all this, no small amount of blessings, grace, and good luck, you finally get in and then you're in kind of for the ride of your life where the analogy that I always hear given is drinking, drinking out of a fire hydrant. That's yes. right. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a little, for, for us, we laugh because it's cliche. We've heard it a million times, but it is not a bad analogy. The, the pace is something that cannot be sustained in its entirety. You take as much as you can. And the nice thing about medical school is there is redundancy in your experiences over time. So things you might not have accumulated the first time around, you see them again and again and again. And then eventually, after two years of book learning, that's where we're at today with Brendan, you get to go and start working with patients. And after two more years of that, then you'll graduate medical school and go into residency. And depending on what you pick, you could pick anything from family medicine that I did. That's a three-year residency, three more years, where you work under supervising doctors. Or you could pick something like neurosurgery, and that's eight more years. <laughs> and so you'll get your first real job when you're about 44. <laughs> and so you and got, moving out of your mother's basement. <laughs> yeah, you've got you got to kind of be nuts to start down this path anyways. And I think that the best reason to do it is if you feel called. And then if you do that, you can really overcome a lot of challenges. But the challenges and the joys and the excitements is what we want to share today with Brendan and kind of hear his story. Yes. And before we go to the interview, we have our patented medical trivia question of the episode. Tom, you're pretty good at coming up with these. I'm wondering, do you have a day calendar, you know, where there's a trivia question a day, or how do you no, do this? No, but there will be. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, coming next year is the Dr. Doc. No, just <laughs> I like the way you think, Andrew, that the medical trivia question of the day is just coming through. No, I just kind of uh, do a gestalt. It's like, what's going to fit here? And so this is what fits here. Here's the preamble. Over 91,000 medical students are currently enrolled in 175 medical schools in the United States for an average of about 130 students per class or 520 students per school. 
What is the largest single campus medical school in the United States? And how many students enroll in each class? Ha, bonus trivia question. Tom yes. didn't even know this was coming. I've got one for Tom. No, this is a first. What? I'm cowering. <laughs> what, out of all these medical schools, what medical school has the most medical students at it? Different answer than Tom's. Multiple campuses, right? Or at one campus, multiple schools of medicine. Dun, we'll dun, be dun. back after the break with our guest, Brendan Radican here on Dr. Doctor. We're back on Dr. Doctor, and here we have Brendan Radican. Brendan is in his second year, actually just completed his second year of medical school, going into his third year in another month uh, at Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine. He's married, has three children, ages four, two, and one, married to a lovely wife, uh, Margaret, and he was a previous Army officer. Brendan, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So, Brendan, you are a, quote, non-traditional student, meaning that you did something before medical school besides college. Yeah, that's right. So I received an ROTC commission fresh out of undergrad, and I commissioned as an Army artillery officer. And I bet a lot of your audience is wondering, how did the artillery prepare you for medical school? I get that a lot. And? Answer is... There was no relationship, and I was not <laughs> any more prepared. But it did help me with, I think, a few really wonderful life skills. The discipline of the military was helpful. The soft skills of relationship building, leading a team, those sorts of things. I'm, that, that's huge. Someone yeah. going from college to med school does not get that. Yeah. And in fact, as we were talking here before, we're saying that non-traditional is becoming traditional. That's certainly my, you know, my experience at school. A lot of my friends have either experience advanced degrees or they have had a side career before coming to medical school. But yeah, I, I think the average age for graduating a four-year undergrad is somewhere around 22, 23. And it should be 22 if you go straight through from high school. If you go straight through. Some as early as 21 if they have a late birthday. And I, I saw just recently the average age for entering medical school now is 24. So that's two extra years of something. So it's creeping up. I I can only hypothesize as to why that might be. Mm. You know, I mm. think it's a good thing because people are getting real-world experiences that can only help you relate to, to future patients. Mm -hmm. So, Brendan, remind patients or listeners who didn't listen to your episode last mm -hmm. year, what are some of the key points of life as a first-year medical student? Yeah, it's. I think the that's just an initial learning curve of walking right into medical school and beginning gross anatomy. How, how easy was that for you? It was challenging, but I I felt so well prepared because of the I mean the faculty are just so professional. It's like they do this every year, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> or at least act like it. I love it. It's like they take people who don't know much and introduce them immediately all the time. And I, it was definitely challenging. I mean, head to toe gross anatomy was this is something I'd never done before. And it was certainly challenging, but I felt well-equipped to accomplish it. I mean, obviously, nice. I was super nervous that first test because I have imposter syndrome. So I was <laughs> worried uh, yes. everyone would think I was a complete failure. But it all worked out. And, um, yeah, I had a great training um, right away, yeah. So I have been told, and it's been confirmed by a number of people, that mm -hmm. in my day, mm -hmm. yeah, way, way back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, uh, almost every student went to almost every lecture. Yeah. We don't see that anymore, do we? That's definitely not the case in my experience. I think we would, we had a very small remnant of about 10 people, maybe 20. Out of uh, 160. Out of 160, which is a very small amount. All the people I talk to, they really enjoy having these lectures streamed online and having the ability to, I think most importantly, fast forward or double time. The, yeah, the, the double speed lecture. Which mm. reminds me, Andrew and I have been toying with the idea of speaking at 1.5x so that if you listen at 1.5x, you'll really be at 2.25x, but so far we're just getting blank stares from our producer. Yeah, think about how much stuff we could go through then. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but back I can't to live like that. No. <laughs> back to reality. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I can imagine having mm -hmm. these fast lectures to listen to to make better use of time so yeah. people like the three of us here would eat that up i don't know if most students do yeah it seems like most students do like yeah they they were just phasing that in when i was going through medical mm -hmm. school and i really liked it i'm i'm somebody who 
benefits a lot more from audio than I do from reading. And so when we had lectures on stuff, there's times when you have to go to the textbooks to get the information. But I much preferred to get the lectures, put it on the double speed. I'd watch it, I don't know, three, four, five times. I mean, you can watch it more times then. <laughs> yes. And uh, it's just for, for people who have not been going through this material if it's something new to you you haven't studied it you've got to see it multiple times to try and absorb as much as you can i i'm very much a different kind of studier i like to receive i like to watch the person lecturing to me watch oh. his actual face live and listen to him while he's actually talking he or she and then i like to review the high yield principles on my own oh, i nice. do have some friends that will just they can just turn this thing on double time and listen to it over and over and i'm I cannot live like that. And we all learn differently. Yeah. So in a way, this is good that that's available because if we missed mm-hmm. it in the lecture back in my day, we missed it in the lecture. Well, they didn't even have, I don't know if you guys have a scribe system. Oh, no. We didn't have that either. No, we and didn't. And my, my folks, my mom and dad are family docs, and they always talked about that was a great job if you were a, a, a medical student. You would sit at the front of class, take really good notes, and then go through, make sure you spell everything right, put in little pictures and diagrams, and then you'd sell them to the rest of the class. And people took turns taking notes so that if you missed it, or at least get a different perspective, you were the scribe for the day. And so that's uh, something that's kind of gone by the wayside yeah, now. Yeah, there's no need for that anymore. It's But talking about what do you do with the first year, it's really figuring out your studies, study habits, study schedule is just the most, is just so critical to early success. Um, especially as we get this massive amount of info. Well, let's talk hours per week. Mm-hmm. How many hours per week in second year versus first year did you met, spend either going to or reviewing lectures, mm-hmm. going to small group discussions, or, mm-hmm. or doing hands-on stuff? You could also answer by how many hours you didn't spend doing that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking back to my med school, and it, it would be hard to count, but I could count the time that I didn't spend doing yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things. There's just so much information you could, if you wanted to study the entire day, but I am married to my beautiful wife, Margaret, and we have kids and I just can't live like that. So what I tried to do right away is make a disciplined study schedule and accept a little bit of loss on things. I will just, I just can't know these certain things because I need to be home um, at least for a couple of hours a day. Yeah. So about how much time a week I tried my absolute hardest to make it into an eight hour workday that didn't really work out, but it spent a little extra time early in the mornings and it, I ended up doing about 10 hours a day, I would say, plus about five or six hours on Saturday. And none on Sundays. And then I refused to study on Sundays. Yeah. Man, you're pretty smart. That's good. Mm -hmm. And it's the, the discipline, I think planning ahead gives you the ability to have that kind of structure, which is really good. Mm -hmm. Now, how is the content of second year different than the content of first year? So Marion tries really hard to be a systems-based curriculum, which means rather than studying basic sciences in part, so pharmacology, physiology, pathology, the curriculum is set up to be systems-based. So we'll do cardiovascular system, pulmonary system, renal system. So the second half of first year is very similar to second year for me. Okay. The really only major difference between first and second year is the board preparation that we're expected to do oh, yeah. at the end of second year. The yeah. boards are a very big thing in medical school because they come periodically. There's three boards before you graduate medical school. Uh, one's actually after you graduate, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And if you do a bad job, you lose. And if you do a good job, you can keep playing. <laughs> I mean, you get you can take it again, but these are very high-pressure tests. Mm-hmm. And so how, how did you find it was best to balance that with your regular studies? Yeah. So I Marion does, I think, a, a really good job of trying to get in front of the board prep rather than doing the four weeks of crazy cramming that some students are kind of succumbed to. So at the very beginning of second year, I kind of already had a review plan in place, which is Whenever we would come to a topic that I know I've seen before, I would review it. And I started incorporating board questions into my um, daily study routine. Ah, nice. Um, Now, in second year, don't you learn your history and physical exam skills? Or are you using that all through first and second year? 
At Marion, we did all through first and second year. Wonderful. Yes. I feel really confident in my history-taking ability. I mean, I have. there's going to be a steep learning curve for me going into third so, year. So how do you learn yeah. to go into a room with a patient for the first time, uh-huh. you know, meet them, ask questions, and examine them thoroughly? Yeah, those poor standardized patients. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> they get Depending it out. Depending on the type of exam, it's hard to pay them enough. <laughs> That's but. Um, so we do use standardized patients who are actors who come in and are trained to have a specific illness. And we will go in and play doctor and make a lot <laughs> of mistakes. Uh, I, faculty watch it. And I feel very sorry for them. <laughs> or maybe they have a good time with it. I don't know. Well, that's part of their payback. Are you kidding? <laughs> that is funny. I had a friend who on the way out said, <laughs> who said to a patient, Good luck with your lupus. <laughs> That's terrible. So That's terrible. she won't say that ever again, right? Also, Good luck with your lupus. Patient, so hopefully, <laughs> oh my goodness. That's the opportunity to really. You're going to pathology, <laughs> radiology. <laughs> yes. Uh, she's so bright. You know, it's just one of those things you just forget how to. Yeah, relate in that moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's there are some things where just in social conversation, you say things just to be polite. Right. Yes. But then you can really drop them at the wrong time. Oh, yeah. Yes. Like I, there was somebody, and I forget what medical something uh, that just happened, but the, the, the person outside after the procedure was like, oh, so how'd it go for you? <laughs> it's like, well, that's not really the exact question you want to say. Now... Brendan is at a DO or Doctor of Osteopathy school, which means they are MDs plus. They learn everything Andrew and I did as medical doctors, plus they learn how to do manipulation like a physical therapist uh, can do, and even more than a physical therapist can do. When do you learn that? They Marion incorporates that immediately. So nice. we have yeah four semesters worth of osteopathic manual therapy treatment or osteopathic manual treatment. So what does that even mean? Yeah. When when would I want to come and get some some manipulation treatment? It's seamlessly integrated into all aspects of medicine, usually in a general medicine setting. But I think I think where the biggest advantage is in the musculoskeletal skeletal system. Nice. That um, a lot of DOs kind of can sometimes gravitate to like a sports medicine sort of field mm-hmm. where they can offer strains and uh, therapy to approach that sort of thing rather than the ice and NSAID approach. Right, yeah. Um, so we start learning that right away in first year. Um, and we practice on each other. We're not going to succumb not on your, not on your wife. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was sharing a story off the air that when, when I was in residency, half of our residency were DOs, doctors of osteopathy, and the other half were MDs. And I always had patients coming in and asking me to, to kind of work on them. I'm like, oh, guys, I'm so sorry. And so I, I had some of the DOs teach me stuff, and I'd always try and oh. practice on my wife. But she uh, wouldn't let me. She was scared. So. <laughs> or wise. Yeah, yes, or wise. Sorry. That's true. And, and we should point out to listeners yeah. that in most residency programs across the country, you often don't know the difference whether someone's an MD or a DO. We work together seamlessly with each other. In my dermatology residency, we had a couple of DOs. I mean, we were all... All treated the same, learning the same things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest change is in the extra things that the DOs learn, and uh, it only makes me jealous. So, <laughs> Yeah, I'm happy to have learned it. Yeah. Yes, yes you are. So you said that you had a family life. Do the other mm-hmm. students have much of a social life during second year? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think some would say that they have too little, and some would say they probably have too much of a social life, right? Um, but... I think social life for some people really just means Sunday morning going for a walk, and that's really it. So to some people, social life means the amount of time where I'm both not sleeping and not studying. That's their social life, which can amount to three or four hours a week or something. Yeah, it can be pretty bad. Um, I can't live like that, Um, but my social life is, I mean, on Sundays is the day of rest. So I like to really give all my undivided attention to my family on Sundays, especially. Um, and then also I will, I mean, all parents kind of have struggle with social lives, right? Unless you have some <laughs> phenomenal babysitter. Yeah. Um, and if you do, I want to know if they're free or not. Um, yeah. But, um, but yeah, social life can be, can be challenging. 
both on the time aspects and it, there's this other like psychological dimension to medical school where because there's this huge amount I feel like if I'm not studying it's almost like a zero sum game if I'm not studying you're worrying about I'm losing something or you're worrying about not studying or I'm worrying about not studying yeah <laughs> Tom yeah. is that a choleric thing because I feel the same way sometimes like even even if I have some time off I almost feel guilty if I know there's work that I should I should have completed before I, I am taking time off uh in the, all the lectures I've been giving over the last couple of years on the temperaments, I ask clerics or I ask people to raise their hand if they have that same kind of sense that I do. Like we always have to be doing something important. Mm-hmm. I think that is one thing. I think there are also some people with a little um, either scrupulosity or a little bit of a obsessive, you know, personality disorder or a little OCD that also can have that same sense. But I, I think temperamentally, yes, it, it is a curse and a, a blessing for clerics. We've to got three clerics here today. I'm part sanguine, so I can talk <laughs> to other people too. But, 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 you know, Brendan and I, we just mimic other people. <laughs> but uh, if you want to know what that means, you're not going to do it in this show, but maybe a letter will be late, another one, but we'll be right back on Dr. Doctor with the third segment of our show. And we're back with Dr. Doctor coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio in Northeast Indiana. Brendan, mm-hmm. you're married, mm-hmm. you've got little kids, mm-hmm. and you've described how you balance your life very well. How many other people are married and maybe have a family in medical school? Yeah, I have some friends who are married at school, but I think having kids is is much different. I, I only have one friend who I know has a has a child, and I don't think I know anyone else in my class who has Or they're hiding children. them very well. Or they're, yes. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, but it, it seems to be super rare. I don't know the data on it, but, yeah. It's definitely, it's got to yeah. be challenging in, in yeah. many ways. You know, with, with school progressing, you know, there's a lot of challenges. Balance becomes key. Did you notice anybody leave school? Were there people that kind of, uh, you know, moved on to other things, thought medical school wasn't for them? I don't know anyone who has left medical school altogether, um, but I know that um, there is some attrition the first year at Marion where some of the students who enter gross anatomy do not pass the class and have to remediate. Um, but I don't, I don't know the percentage of those that remediate just choose not to and to go on with something else in their lives. It's, it's pretty hard to do because yeah. I, I reflected on that. After you walk in the doors, you get your little badge and stuff, mm-hmm. boom, you're 60 grand in debt. Yeah. So it's hard to walk away from. So there's and and the schools I think do a good job about mm-hmm. investing in the students. So even if there's times when you struggle with your education, yeah. you have the opportunity to remediate, kind of get the extra help to get through that. So my my experience in med school was that there was not a lot of people that so to speak left that pathway, yeah. but they just maybe took an extra year or something like that. Yeah, okay. there were uh, two of us in my class who took a year off. I was one, and that, that was to discern whether I had a vocation to priesthood and mm-hmm. came right back and finished the following year. And, and actually, I'm kind of glad I didn't end up being traditional going all the way through, although mm-hmm. at the time I thought, this is what you have to do, otherwise you're a, a dummy or something if mm-hmm. you didn't go straight through that. Mm-hmm. Couldn't be further from the truth, because I was remarking before the show how much more mature I think Brendan is at age 27 than I was at mm. age 27 having graduated from medical school. Yeah, thanks. We only say it because it's true. <laughs> hey, what's the best thing about being a second-year medical student compared to being a first-year medical student? Not being a first-year medical student. That's I mean, that's it. I mean, that's, 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 that is the very, the very best thing. Um, I, I would say I really got good at my study habits and study routine mm-hmm. going into ah, second year. Nice. That's so important. I mean, it. so kind of really getting good at study habits, being really disciplined, knowing that it all works is super affirming. And then slowly adding the uh, first year review in order to start mastering the material for board preparation. So that was, yeah, that was the major. So what proportion of students are as organized as you in doing this, you know, very planned, thought out review throughout the year? That's a really good question. Marion really encourages everyone immediately to kind of dis- discern what is your best review strategy oh, and at least to good. have a strategy going into second year. Yeah. For some students, it's I can't do both at one time. I'm barely staying afloat during my coursework. I need to wait till my last exam to start board prepping and then dedicated board study for six weeks or something like that. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't like the, that sort of pressure. Maybe right. some students are also 
smart enough to study like that. <laughs> um, but I needed I needed a little more repetition than just the dedicated six week offer offered to me. Uh, yeah, you you are what my uh, in undergrad my dean of students would call the classic lazy student. You do all the work ahead of time, so coming up to the test, you can just relax. <laughs> <laughs> if that's lazy, they, I they want, said, I'm that kind they of They said, lazy. you want to be the lazy student that the day before the test, you're at the beach because <laughs> everybody else is cramming. But if you do all the work ahead of time, you get to be the lazy student. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, how often have you ever stayed up after midnight studying? No, never. Exactly. Yeah. I was the same way. I, I couldn't relate to the students who did. Yeah. No, I can't. I can't either. And I'm most effective in the mornings, and I mean... After 8 p.m., I am almost completely ineffective studying, especially for the material that needs the constant review. Yes. You yeah. know, like, You're wise to know yourself. Yeah. Friendships, do mm-hmm. they exist in medical school among students? And if so, are most students trying to help each other? Yeah. Or are there, are there this nefarious games playing going on? Yeah. I was warned about the competitive nature of medical school going into it. Medical students are very driven. Um, sure. Um, naturally. Um, but I think the competition is a healthy one at Marion, at least. And I can only speak from my experience. I'm sure. not familiar with that on other schools. But um, all of my – so friendships. Friendships was um, – it kind of starts at the gross anatomy table, right? That's kind of yeah. – yes. yes. Yeah, we're one of my best friends. That's where we met. Your uh, arm's in the way. I can't see the spleen. <laughs> <laughs> hey, by the way, I'm Brendan. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's going to be a good year. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's kind of it kind of starts there, and and at least for me, f- making friends at Marion was very easy. And it also might be a little bit of the do flavor. I mean, because uh, we start yeah. we start osteopathic uh, manipulative medicine right away, and that's so you have to touch each other. We have to touch each other. That, don't underestimate the value of that. That's it's true. An immediate icebreaker. It really is. Yes. Um, Didn't think of that. Till yeah. Now. So. I don't know if that kind of like takes the pressure down a little bit or maybe eases the competitiveness between each other. But I mean, if my if my friends would would do better than me on an exam, I would be elated for them. I'm just happy for them that they can succeed, you know, at school. You are so much more mature than I was. Thanks be to God we have people like you coming through the pipeline. (laughs) That's true. I, I think of it a lot like cross country. Yeah. Where. Okay. You're obviously competing with yourself. Right. And it's it's a team in a lot of ways. You're trying to get yeah. get through it together. But if somebody PRs on this race and, and you didn't, you're like, I'm going to hit it a little harder this week. <laughs> you know, so it's yeah. healthy, but it's definitely mm-hmm. yeah. pushing people onward. That, yeah. that was more of my experience. Yeah, B- Brendan. Yeah. For anybody listening out mm-hmm. there who's thinking about going to med school or has a a child who's considering going to medical school, mm-hmm. what do you wish you had known? before you went to medical school that you didn't? Oh, that's a good question. I think I would say I had always thought, you know, trust me, I'm a doctor, right? So, like, uh, <laughs> doctors are kind of experts at everything, right? Yeah, that's the impression that quite a <laughs> lot of people the reality. Have. Yeah, so I, you know, I showed up at medical school like, oh, man, well, I'm not really an expert at anything other than shooting this giant gun. So that's not, <laughs> that's not relevant. Um, but I was so surprised at how, I don't want to say poorly formed, but maybe how uh, uninformed my peers and faculty are in areas of philosophy and ethics. Yeah. I mean, I thought, uh, oh man, doctors, they, they know ethics, right? I mean, this happens all the time in medicine. Medicine and ethics hit each other all the time. But they are just not better formed than any other person in, that I've met in my life. Yeah, um, and I, I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head being a quote-unquote non-traditional student, yeah. having something else, even if it's in the artillery, it's a whole different life experience that you bring mm. and compare that to the traditional students where, in especially in undergrad, it's pretty hard, I think, for, for folks to take classes not science-based. Yes. You know? Yeah. And so having those extra experiences, I think... I think you bring up a really good point. A lot of a lot of doctors don't have a diversity of experience. Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to when it comes to matters of philosophy and ethics, they kind of revert to their area of expertise. Like, oh, well, I'm going to think of this like a science experiment, and I'll use the scientific method. So, yes. So let's take, you know, let's take um, uh, my moral worldview. Well. I'm kind of consequentialist then as, well, they don't know this. They're not that reflective, <laughs> but they're ultimately consequentialist in their background because yeah. what the good result is, right, which they can determine by the scientific method, this is a good thing. I just determined it's a good thing. Well, that's the new kind of moral law. Yeah. Um, so that becomes, I think, 
I mean, super problematic immediately in almost it, all these medical ethics issues. Yeah. You bring up a great point because yeah. I, I recall back to my medical ethics class, yeah. these ideas of like quality adjusted life years. I don't know if you've heard that yeah, term before. Yeah. Yep. Trying to figure out how much uh, a person's life is worth right. and should we pay for this medicine or not? Yeah. Or, you know, trying to decide who gets treatment. I mean, these are not done from a Christian perspective at all. Right. This is purely, uh, as you say, consequentialism, utilitarianism, yeah, yeah. you know, looking at people only for how useful they are. Right. And then that shows you how the major medical bodies can get into so many weird positions that right. are really against our faith. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. Oh, in the intro, Andrew and I were talking about, you know, balancing medicine and the balance between the art the business and mm -hmm. the science of medicine. Mm -hmm. In your first two years of medical school, what is your sense of what the balance looks like based on what you've been taught? Yeah. I mean, I so the science is incredible. I sure. mean, and it's taught heavily, right? Tons right. of hours of science. The the basic sciences is what we do in the first two years and hours and hours and hours of it. Taught very professionally and I, I think very effectively. I certainly learned so much in the first two years. Now the art of science, the uh, the art of medicine is something I think, you know. Again, I don't I don't know other schools, um, but I am very happy with my experience at Marion, learning the art of medicine. How do they teach that? What do they teach? Yeah, so it's as easy as learning history, taking ways to ask questions in a history that aren't incriminating or suggesting, you know, um, things that would maybe evoke the what the patient is actually thinking. So, for example, we learned about. Different, like the technique in taking the history where you ask open-ended questions, yes, not very specific yes or no questions, which is ultimately, I think, a little bit misleading, right, when we get the answers from patients. So, right. You know, yeah. we've been talking about like the way that students view the world. They yeah. might only have a scientific lens yeah. or asking patients those questions. Then we end up with this fallacy I've recently learned about, which I abbreviate as WYSIADY, what you see is all there is. So yeah. when you ask something, you have this data, you don't even consider what might be outside of that. And in an open-ended question, we mm -hmm. learn more about a patient that, oh, if I'd asked these very narrow questions, I wouldn't know this about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think of how often somebody comes in and what it says at the top of the paper and compare that to what you actually talk about and do. <laughs> how often those line up? I yeah. mean, maybe half the time. Yeah, maybe chief not. complaint, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it... It's just applying the scientific method to every area of your life is really unscientific, right? It's yes. outside of the domain of science. It's like using the scientific method to determine truths of mathematics, right? No, no, it's, you're in the wrong category. You, you are. Um, same, similar with ethics. I just say, no, this is, you're using the scientific method in a domain that is not proper to the scientific method. Right. Yeah. You don't use ethics to figure out how the eyelets of Langerhans work in the pancreas. No. And you don't use business principles to figure out the best way to treat a patient, although that's one of the big problems in medicine when you refer to different aspects of a hospital as product lines. No, <laughs> these are patients, <laughs> they're not products, mm -hmm. and they're not customers. Mm -hmm. um, so, and on that frustrating note, <laughs> we will end the third segment of our show here from the studios of Redeemer Radio on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, coming to you with the answer to your two <laughs> trivia questions. Yeah, today. Andrew's uh, getting in on this business. He is. Tom, you don't get to have all the fun he, well, with the trivia questions. <laughs> that, that's right. I'm glad that you're joining. You know, the more the merrier. <laughs> so the, the short version of the question is, what is the largest single campus medical school in the United States? and how many students enroll in each class. And being from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, there, at, when I could apply, there were three medical students, or three MD medical schools at the time. Mm -hmm. There was University of Michigan, Wayne State in downtown Detroit, and Michigan State School uh, of Human Medicine. And so the answer is actually one of those, and it's the one school in the state I did not apply to. Because I was from a town of 15,000 in a very rural part of the state, and I figured my life expectancy on Woodward Avenue in Detroit would be about 15 minutes. Therefore, I did not apply to Wayne State School of Medicine, which is the correct answer. They currently have 290 students per year in each class. That's a lot of students. Actually, that's where my parents went. 
So going back down, that's how my family, an Irish family, fell in love with Polish food. My oh, fa- folks lived Ham-tramic. in Hamtramck. Yeah. So we would still go down there for the Strawberry Festival. Well, now Andrew's honing in on the fun, so what's your answer? So my, Explain yours. My, my question was getting at which, which medical or which school had the most medical students. Uh, and it's a bit on of a, one campus. On one campus, it's a bit of a trick question. Uh, the The school is my alma mater, Michigan State, uh, the third of the original three uh, Michigan medical schools. Now there's there's six of them now. I think oh, the last a, couple of years more than I can keep track of. But Michigan State is you pretty unique. It's the only school with an MD and a DO school, and they have a vet school. And so when you said you're a medical student, they're like, uh, "What kind? Uh, I'm, I'm a vet." <laughs> Oh, I'm I'm with uh, the College of Osteopathy. Oh, my college was a college of human medicine. So the numbers, Andrew. So the numbers, <laughs> each year, there's 580 in each class, and uh, that's a total of 2,300 medical students I'm in those programs. Counting the vet students. That's, that's enormous. Pretty high. Well, we are going back to Brendan. Brendan attends... <laughs> medical school on a Catholic campus. Yeah. Uh, yes. How difficult or easy is it to have religious conversations with your classmates? Yeah. I think because of the competitive nature of medical schools, the fact that Marion is on a Catholic campus, that didn't really deter anybody or really maybe attract very many people. You might think like, oh, there's a higher percentage of Catholics mm-hmm. at Marion's med school. That might very well be the case. But I, I don't think my experience would be much different from the experience of other medical school students at other medical schools in terms of the proportion of Christians on campus. Okay. Um, yeah. But I think the biggest problem in, in evangelization with other students, it's not the campus of Marion being a Catholic campus. I think it's a little bit of a generational problem. Millennials really kind of born and bred in the relativism of mm-hmm. and really consequentialism of the sciences that they've kind of pursued. Um, but relativism is such a hard wall to break through. Um, I think it's really easy for me to begin discussions with other medical students about, you know, so tell me, do you think God exists? Or um, what do you think this is all about? You know, um, those questions are really easy. And my friends, I don't know if this is typical of all millennials, but a lot of the students I go to school with, they're super open to talking about that sort of thing. And they love talking to me about it. The problem, though, is the conviction, right? So it's something that's really interesting for me, right? But it's something that maybe isn't for them, right? Oh, religion seems to really have done a great deal of good for Brendan. And maybe religion will continue to do a good amount of good in the world. So maybe it's a good thing. But is Christ risen from the dead? is the question that does not get answered among my friends. You know, and yeah. Brendan, for our listeners, they can tell that you're passionate, especially about ethics. We talked mm-hmm. about that in the last segment. Yeah, yeah. You're up to date on all the isms, right? And you want to spread <laughs> the so. good news. <laughs> yes. The good news of the Catholic faith. Yeah. And so Brendan's been working on this project yeah. that I'm super excited about. We at Dr. Doctor believe this is going to bear great fruit. Mm-hmm. And this is even kind of going through the CMA a little bit, getting mm-hmm. some support yeah. there. Tell yeah. everybody what you've been up to. Yeah, so... Kind of inspired during my uh, summer internship at St. Vincent with Dr. Elliot Bedford there. Who's been on our show a few times. He's becoming our in-house ethicist. He's a wonderful <laughs> man. I kind of have a little bit of the convert zeal. I'm not a true convert. I'm a revert. But I feel like I have been lied to my whole life before I reverted. Now, ah. Wait a minute. You mean the Catholic Church has 2,000 years of answers to these questions? <laughs> How hasn't anybody told me? So... I, I was super inspired over my summer internship. Like, oh my goodness, this tradition, big T tradition, is so vast and so helpful for me, but I don't feel like any of my friends know about this. So I developed with so much help from Elliot and from other CMA doctors, the Catholic Medical Conscience app. And the goal of this application is primarily a language translation. Kind of, we have these two separate paradigms, right? The paradigm of philosophy and theology on one. Yes. But doctors don't speak the language of philosophy and theology. They speak the language of science. Right? And as our listeners are listening, let's put it a little slower. The yeah. Catholic Medical Conscience <laughs> app. So That's this right. is what Brendan's so excitedly talking about. This is an <laughs> app for your phone. I've never met someone who yeah. made an app. 
So wow, it's, it's nice ne- to meet neither you. Neither have I. Ooh, <laughs> I have we a are good not friend. Worthy. <laughs> <laughs> I have a good friend who speaks Java or mm. whatever it is. Not just for Star Wars, but yeah, um, Java the Hut. That's right. Yeah. But the the project of the app is primarily one of translation. I mean, that's that's the chasm between the beautiful tradition in the Catholic Church and the everyday nurse doctor who's just trying to do their best. Yes. And really the answer to them, to their ethical questions has been, well, you should either pray about it and good luck on your own, or, (laughs) well, here, why don't you read Veritatis Splendor and good luck? (laughs) Neither of which is is helpful. Good luck with your lupus. (laughs) (laughs) So there are, like, the National Catholic Bioethics Center, I mean, beautiful organization, right? They are doing so much help trying to get the richness of the Catholic tradition to people. But, But sometimes there's still a little bit of that language gap. And the Catholic Medical Conscience app, what it's doing is it's taking individual clinical situations, right? Ethical conflicts in a clinical situation and asking you questions like a good healthcare ethicist would. So it's supposed to be used almost like a good healthcare ethicist. Yes. It sounds like more of an examination of conscience rather than a dictionary. It (laughs) is. Oh, yes, it is. And another key... Another key element of this app is that it is conscience is the name of the game here, right? This isn't an algorithm. You don't enter the right numbers and get a good ethical answer. (laughs) But um, it is very practical in that sense. And there's so many hyperlinked sources that it can really help guide the reading of somebody who wants to learn more but never really knew where to start. Um, Linked you know, specific catechism paragraphs or specific encyclical paragraphs. I mean, the ethical and religious directives are heavily cited in this app just because it's such a useful document. I mean, that's what it's for. So I understand so far you've gotten the first of two steps in official church approval. That's right, yeah. The uh, Censor Laborum of Indianapolis has granted the Nihil Obst. Okay, sorry, that might be a little bit. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> people are really following It's here. all Latin to me. Yes, <laughs> not Greek, Latin. Um, but the, um, the expert in uh, Catholic doctrine has... Gr- affirmed that this app does not contradict Catholic teaching. Nihil Obstan. There's no obstacle. And the Ethics Committee of the Mm -hmm. CMA has approved it, and we're waiting to get final official approval from the CMA. Mm -hmm. Now, if people want to Mm -hmm. get this app, how do they do it? Yeah, Catholic Medical Conscience app. It'll be available on the Apple and Google stores. Oh, you demand. Strong work. Well, in our last several minutes, let's go. I'd like to really know how is your evaluation of potential future specialties going, Mm -hmm. and where are you now compared to this time last year, compared to before med school? Yeah. Uh, So I'm pre-clerkship, right? So I'm yet to truly experience specialties on, on site. But what I've done, I think, is made answered really two big questions. The first, how badly do I want to do surgery? Or do I want to do surgery at all? Right. And I, the operating room doesn't really draw me at this point. So I'm kind of thinking instead of more, more medical specialties. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second question I really wanted to ask is, do, am I interested in preventative medicine? Ah, uh, yeah. And I don't think I am. Um, I, I, I'm very, I'm really interested in being personable and having relationships with people. Um, but as far as the uh, medical interest is and regarding my temperament, I think it would be, I think I'm best suited for something like either emergency medicine or maybe being a, a hospitalist or maybe even in an ICU. Critical care is Critical what I'm care. hearing you say. Yeah. High stakes. I think I, I, I'm most attracted to high stakes medicine. Now I'm yet to experience it, right? So, but you're we'll choosing high stakes That's things right. which have a limited window of time each day because mm-hmm. I know you, like me and Andrew, have many outside passions. Shift work right now is very attractive to me because I, yeah. I think I'm somebody who, when you say, when somebody tells me to work till the job's done, that's bad news for a choleric temperament. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, never uh, done. <laughs> right. yeah. It only took me three days, although I did not sleep or eat or <laughs> do anything else. That's my right. vocation's at home. I mean, I, right. I, my vocation, I've discerned, is to be a father. And I'm, I'm very excited about using medicine to accomplish corporal works of mercy. Very excited about that. Very excited to use medicine as a way to provide for my family. Um, but ultimately, as far as the ordering of my life goes, I, I want to be a father and a husband. Um, so that's why shift, the shift work of critical care 
I think might be the match made in heaven for me, but Very haven't experienced exciting. it yet. Well, in, a, in, your, in our last minute here, mm-hmm. what final things would you like listeners to know about medical school? Yeah, it's um, especially if, if you're... You know, I'm going to be very safe and careful with giving advice, but I mean, if you're if you're discerning whether or not you want to go to medical school, or maybe you have a, a son or daughter going to medical school, I think it's just so important to begin learning the Catholic philosophical and moral tradition, and this this can be done simply by reading a couple of things. I think the ethical religious directives for healthcare, and also becoming familiar with the uh, National Catholic Bioethics Center. Both of those things would be super important in getting your bioethics formed and ready to go so you can sniff out the bad philosophy that sort of masquerades as science. Right. Otherwise, you get immunized by the secular culture around you to what is true and what is not. And regular shots hurt enough. (laughs) (laughs) And he gives them. Oh, I give them. My nurses give them all the time. They're just not immunizations. This won't hurt me. (laughs) It won't? It doesn't? No. Uh, Although watching and listening sometimes. No, not really. So, Brendan, thanks for being our guest second year in a row. We've got two more shows until we've completed our four-volume set of uh, what it's like to be a medical student and thank all of you faithful listeners and new listeners to uh, be with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from our good studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen to past episodes on iTunes or Google Play Podcasts. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing with Dr. Michelle Cretella the impending Equality Act being debated in Washington, D.C. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your question to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor where you can also find all our past episodes. Keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app or by following us on Facebook at Dr. Doctor Show.